Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jackman Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. One of the best books I read in 2020 was Woody Guthrie, An Intimate Life by Gustavus Stadler. A portrait of a leftist folk singer who is hopefully familiar to you, the listener. A famous figure in American culture in the 20th century. A, a radical uh, someone whose music I personally find uh, particularly compelling, even as somebody who doesn't like folk music that much. Um, but this book is uh, sort of more than just a biography of a guy who did great songs and had some pretty good politics. Uh, it's also a portrait of a uh, deeply human and, uh, you know, deeply, uh, as the subtitle indicates, a deeply uh, intimate uh, figure that I found extremely personally compelling. Uh, and I talked to Gustavus Stadler, who is a professor of English at Haverford College, about the book and about the life and times of Woody Guthrie. Here's our conversation. Gus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So it's kind of a lazy interviewer question to, to start with this, but I'm going to ask anyway because I feel like the answer might actually be interesting. Um, why did you decide to write this book? I mean, Woody Guthrie is a storied American figure, somebody who many biographies have been written about and documentaries and everything else. So uh, why did you uh, feel the need to to add another biography to this this pile of already existing ones? Well, I came to it in a kind of a roundabout way, which is maybe why I, you know, I didn't get intimidated by the other biographies. But like, I'm not historically like a huge folk music fan. Um, I admired what I knew of Woody Guthrie. Um, my parents would listen to Pete Seeger sings Woody Guthrie, though. And so like, you know, I think they thought Woody Guthrie was a little too punk or something. <laughs> One of my scholarly fields of expertise in the history of sexuality. And I came to this, um, you know, Google Books, whatever, excerpt from Klein's biography, Joe Klein's biography of Woody Guthrie that said that he had been in this Center for the Treatment of Sexual Deviance uh, run by Quakers in uh, 1949. And so this was really intriguing to me, and I wanted to find out more. Um, it turns out that he had written some erotic letters to a woman in California. Um, he was living in New York and he had been charged with sending obscene materials through the mail. I just had this image of like this old left, you know, hero, like sitting in this center, which I just, I began to do research on 80% of, or more of the people who received treatment in that center were men who had been arrested having sex with other men in public, basically. And so this image of him in in a space like that was just really intriguing to me. And and I went to the archive, which was then in Mount Kisco, New York. It's in Tulsa now. Um, you know, just to kind of read what they had that he was writing around that period. They don't have the obscene, the, you know, so-called obscene letters. But, you know, what he'd been writing in his journals and things like that. But so at this point, I, and I think this happens to a lot of people, when they get into the Guthrie archive, they're sort of blown away. Um, and I was blown away. Um, just the range of materials there, the amount of materials, um, writing, painting, you know, no novel manuscripts, song, you know, thousands of song lyrics, um, plays, you know, like, uh, and just beautiful things like um, journals where he would, you know, paint in watercolor over his own writing. Um, it was an aesthetic that, you know, you don't associate with the old left, like that a sort of really workmanlike um, social realist aesthetic. I mean, it was just, there was just so much stuff there. And it was clear that this man's mind was working imaginatively in some kind of compulsive way. And I remember, like, literally, like, the first day I was there, I was like, I'm going to write an article about this. And then the second day, I was like, I'm writing a book about Woody Guthrie. <laughs> you know, like, because there was just so much there that didn't fit with that, um, you know, very conventional understanding of him as, like, the Dust Bowl troubadour and the boxcar writer and all of that. Reading the book, like, picking it up, I'm like, 
you know, obviously I was interested enough to start reading it, but I was like, uh, do we really need another book about Woody Guthrie? I know there's a bunch out of there. And then I'm reading the stuff that you're finding and what, as you just said, what's in the archive. And I'm like, we need like 40 more books about Woody Guthrie. We need, we need an army of, of grad students yeah. and academics to descend on the archive and write about all this stuff. Cause it's such a, such a fascinating character, somebody whose output was so prodigious and in a relatively short amount of time given as we're about to discuss uh what you know what his, the way that his life was cut very unfortunately short um so let, let's just start with the, the the basics i mean remind people i i have a feeling most listeners are probably like know who woody guthrie is they've surely heard you know this land is your land or whatever um which is which is a great song but uh w- yeah remind us this is the basics of his life and politics. So he was born in uh, 1912 in Okima, Oklahoma, about 50 miles south of Tulsa, small town. His father was a kind of real estate developer and a, um, a civic figure. I think he held some kind of city office. He was also a white supremacist, possibly me- a member of the Klan. His mother, um, who he was very close to, suffered from Huntington's disease, although it's not clear that they knew what it was, but uh, as it was uh, sort of devastating her body and mind, she behaved erratically. There were a couple of really tragic incidents in which one, one in which she lit Woody's sister on fire and, 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 and would Clara, her name um, actually burned to death. So he has a, a lot of trauma in his childhood. Um, he ends up kind of, kind of growing up on his own in Okima and then later in Plano, Texas, learning how to play music, kind of an autodidact. He reads a lot, drops out of school, but reads a ton in the library. He goes he goes out to California along with a, a bunch of Okies. He rides boxcars. He goes to migrant camps and sees uh, of the sort of exploitation and um, precariousness that's, that's happening at this time. He ends up in L.A., he has a wife um, and a couple of kids that he married in Texas, and he has them come out. Um, in L.A., he he starts to meet a lot of serious leftists, um, communists. Um, he starts to have a radio show, um, which goes from being kind of like a hillbilly radio show to um, to something that's more politically engaged, something where he's singing about um, – you know, what's going on with the the laborers and the labor camps and um, the migrants coming in. And then he ends up playing in a concert where he gets discovered by um, Alan Lomax, the famous folklorist, who persuades him to move to New York, takes him down to the Library of Congress to record for like 10 hours um, and makes these, you know, this incredible document of songs and monologues and um, sort of, you know, oral memoir. Um, and eventually Guthrie settles in New York and, um, you know, he records the Dust Bowl songs and he records, you know, most of the f- famous um, songs that we know of his were all kind of recorded in the early to mid 40s. And, you know, in sort of the Guth- the standard Guthrie story, like in the first, the two big bios, at this point, we're about 75 to 80% through the book. What was interesting to me was how long after that he kept doing this writing and painting and everything um, and how little attention had been paid to that material. Something that happens when he moves to New York very soon after is that he meets a woman named Marjorie Mazia, who was a Martha Graham dancer, and he falls in love with her. And they are both married. Um, there's like a number of years of kind of like st- strife and struggle, but they end up, you know, working it out to extract themselves from their marriages and get married. And then they, they move to, to Mermaid Avenue in Coney Island. And that's basically where he lives for the next like five or so years. Um, and that's the, you know, obviously the place that the, those Wilco and Billy Bragg albums are are named after his relationship with Marjorie. I mean, the the, the sort of significance of that as um, a relationship with a dancer, with a woman who had you know had a sort of powerful body. I mean, and 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 his work with Marjorie's associates is 
the dancers are like 80% women. Um, and you know, they're all, they're all, I mean, he writes about this actually, how resilient they are, how they work through injuries, how they like, you know, you see all these bandages on their legs and, um, and, and it's, it's really a striking thing to, to think about in relationship to his having watched his mother's body decline. Um, and you know, that's a really big part of his autobiography, although people don't talk about that part of his autobiography either. Um, it's all about the boxcars. So, um, so I started just to sort of focus on the body and how much of his life had been driven by feelings of shame around the body and then eventually his body as he became ill with Huntington's himself. In the late 40s or so, he starts, probably he starts to experience symptoms of Huntington's chorea, Huntington's disease, which include these um, involuntary movements um, that become quite drastic, you know, not like the Parkinson's tremor, but, you know, um, just really sort of eventually sort of flailing um, motions in the limbs, which actually endanger the person. And then it's also associated with dementia. Um, And so, you know, he's continuing to write, he's continuing to paint and write songs and stuff. He's finding it harder to play guitar. He's finding it harder to get gigs. Some of that has to do with the political climate, but he does keep writing like into the, you know, early mid fifties. And then, you know, at a certain point, he can't play guitar anymore because of the effect on his limbs. And, you know, his writing starts to look horribly, you know, um, unruly, which is really sad because in his younger life, it was so neat and precise. Um, and you know, his, his behavior starts to be erratic. People don't want to be around him. So by 1956, basically he gets, you know, picked up on as a vagrant somewhere in New Jersey. Um, he's just wandering around and, um, he's, um, he tells them that he's a famous folk singer and they don't believe him, you know, but he's interned in Greystone Park um, State Hospital in New Jersey and spends most of the next 10 years there until he dies in 1967. Uh, I didn't really think about this very much until I read your book, but I have a, a kind of like personal relation to Woody Guthrie as this figure. I th- the first time I ever listened to Woody Guthrie, I remember, was when I worked as a page at the Walker Public Library in North Muskegon, Michigan, my first uh, you know, s- serious job as a teenager. And I uh, checked out, uh, oh, I forget the name of it, but a CD of him, just like, I think the Dust Bowl recordings or something like that. And yeah, Dust Bowl Ballads. Maybe. Dust Bowl Ballads, that's right. And, uh, you know, I was a, a teenage anarchist punk kid. I knew that I was supposed to like Woody Guthrie. He did cool stuff like hop on boxcars and travel around. And that was that was cool. And he had this sort of, you know, as you said earlier, is this kind of like punk, punkish, you know, proto-punk uh, ethos to him. So uh, I remember, you know, listening to, to that album uh, a bunch as I had checked it out from the library. Um and then he's just sort of like stuck around in my life since then. And I, I, I didn't even think about it until you just mentioned the Mermaid Avenue album by Billy Bragg and Wilco. I, I had totally forgotten that I played in a band and I played drums in a band in college that covered at least one song. We played California Stars off of that album. Uh, I played several shows playing that. Um, and and then as time has gone on, you know, I've learned more about Guthrie and still love his music, but then you know his he he emerges as i'm learning about you know the old left and the history of the communist party and G- guthrie is this key figure uh certainly on the cultural side of uh of the old left and of the of the communist party and so as i'm like learning about that history then guthrie keeps popping up over and over again and then i have this other aspect of uh, of a ties to guthrie which is about huntington's disease because i uh, my my grandmother on my mother's side uh, died of Huntington's disease, and uh, she was somebody who I'd always heard these stories about growing up uh, of being this incredibly in a, in a family of like pretty stern and uh, emotionless German Americans. Uh, my grandma was the one who actually had some life in her uh, and worked in a flower shop and used to bring people flowers all the time and. Um, 
you know, just all of these just incredible stories. There's, you see photos of her, and she's just like radiant, uh, you know, just a huge smile, uh, sort of lighting up the room in the photo. But then I, when I knew her uh, after I was born, I mean, I only knew her as basically a vegetable because uh, Huntington's had totally devastated her uh, brain and body. And so I only knew her as someone who couldn't speak and for whom my grandfather had to... Uh, blend all her food and you know feed it to her like she was an infant basically um and so that made the guthrie story really come alive to me even in in a whole other way because it has this whole personal tie uh to my own family i mean i watched what what uh huntington's i I think you you may actually know more about huntington's than i do but i think huntington's might uh manifest in different people who have it in different ways um like there's you tell stories in the book about Guthrie. Uh, I mean, it drove him further into alcoholism. It, there were like spasms of rage. I think especially from his um, from his mother, right? You know, it, it it manifests in different ways. But I just experienced it as the most cruel thing that had ever happened to my family, and uh, really robbed me and all of my family of this this wonderful woman. And then it's. It's pre- I mean, it gets passed down, potentially passed down from generations, so it's possible that my mother has it, um, although there are no signs of that, thank God. Uh, and if my mother has it, though, then it's possible that I could have it. And so all of this has made Guthrie as a figure really just, like, prominent in my mind for both uh, sort of personal and uh, political reasons. And then I read this book, and yeah, you in the book. I mean, I knew all that before I read your book, and then I read your book, and then it sort of comes alive in a whole host of other different ways. Um, so, can you talk about? I guess before we move on to the the sort of intimacies that the, the book is really, you know, that's kind of its raison d'etre is to get into that stuff. Um, remind people about his his politics and his involvement in in radical politics and in the Communist Party. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the way he got into politics initially was through. Uh, the labor movement and um, his interest in unprotected workers. Um, But, you know, that quickly, and especially in this era, led him to the Communist Party. And, you know, there's always that, like, codicil you see all the time. Like, well, while never a card-carrying member, um, and I guess that's true, um, that he, you know, there's no card, but he enthusiastically, you know, straightforwardly embraced communism. It's all over his writing. And it's a kind of communism that for like the late 30s, early 40s was kind of common in the age of what was called the Popular Front, where there was this, you know, attempt to uh, create an alliance between various places on the spectrum of the left from like liberal New Deal Democrats all the way to communists in order to fight the threat of fascism, like there was just a feeling of the urgency of fighting fascism meant you had to, you know, we had to put de- put down these these internal differences and like concentrate on that. So there's a famous slogan that the Communist Party had, um, Earl Browder uttered at some point, like the late 30s, that communism is 20th century Americanism. And so there's this kind of like attempt to sort of mainstream it. And it's also tied more to like they try to tie communism more to culture, like folk culture, like very sort of pre-modern, you know, American culture. Um, So that's part of it. I mean, I think he's he's part of that climate. Again, though, I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about lately and that I real I'm sort of realizing in, in retrospect more and more is that I you know he, I don't think really America like as a idea place whatever was really that important to him you don't see that in his in his papers like um I think that what was more important to him was actually anti-fascism and you know America was like kind of like a you know a, a useful resource for that fight, like an important resource for that fight. Um, But yeah, I mean, I guess the point being that he was a communist, he was serious about it, but that did include like, you know, believing that culture was important, that singing was important, that art was important. I was going to ask you, uh, uh, because Guthrie is one of those figures who is associated with, uh, I'm going to use you know, air quotes around this term, but sort of like an indigenous uh, American culture, obviously a fraught 
word to use, but I don't know what else, what other word to use, uh, like an indigenous American radicalism. It sort of like feels authentic to America, both in both in his songs and then also in his in the way that he articulated his politics, which to me is like of a piece with, the, you know, you, you would say a similar thing about a Eugene Debs uh, or uh, or a Bernie Sanders um or, or Martin Luther King. I mean, like, yeah. And so, yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you to sort of reflect on that. Is, is that true? And, and it does what you just said about like America not being a very important uh, idea to him uh, complicate that? Yeah, that's a great question. So going back a little bit, I think it's really hard to imagine for us that a place like Oklahoma in like the 19 teens would have two socialist newspapers to like well-distributed socialist newspapers. So in addition to having this father who's like, you know, a right-wing racist reactionary, like there is available in, it's considered just like part of the world that there'll be these socialist newspapers like that you can readily buy um, and and read. And, and, you know, I think you're right that that sort of homegrown atmosphere did have an impact on him. He he admired Eugene Debs. Um, and yeah, that's sort of more um, rural or agricultural, you know, um, tradition of of organizing. I mean, I think he does embrace himself, you know, himself as sort of taking up that tradition. He wants to represent, you know, what he sees as like parts of the nation that are getting sort of behind in the march of modernity. Um, I think though that like, you know, when he goes to L.A. and he starts to talk to people in the Communist Party there, um, like a, his his interests really widen and they start to include, for one thing, they start to include uh, race a lot more, like anti-Black racism and civil rights. It was fascinating to me just to see all of the links that people that he talked to, people like, you know, Paul Robeson, of, who's also of that, that world, um, all the links they made between European fascism and like Jim Crow. Fascism was a really important term for them to name these specifically American forms of disentitlement and and injustice. And so I feel like another thing that happened sort of in the 40s and then more and more was that the possibility of romanticizing America became harder and harder for him. I mean, and especially as he did, he he did, as this is another one of the things I try to trace in my book, but he did become more and more cognizant about um, race and politics addressing things like Jim Crow, but also addressing like police violence and housing discrimination and all of these really, I mean, obviously like persistent issues, but some things that like sort of mainstream civil rights um, organizations shied away from a bit. Um, part of that was a class thing, um, especially on police violence. Um, so anyway, you know, by the early to mid forties, I mean, he's very gung ho about the war, you know, about World War II as the communist party was, but you know, it's a lot of that is because he loves, they love the fact that the Soviet, they're fighting with the Soviet union. That's a big factor. And and they love the fact that they're they're gonna fucking kill Hitler, you know, <laughs> like so. Um, I mean, who wouldn't be excited about that? Yeah, right. So um, again, like I just when I think about the extent to which you know, largely on the basis of this land is your land. Like I think people think of him as this, you know, just one of those pure products of America or whatever. You know, maybe a lefty one. But then when I think about the archive and like the songs he was writing and, you know, he's writing about Sacco and Vanzetti, like a whole album about them. It's all this stuff about like individual cases of police violence, calling, calling um, Jim Crow fascism. It doesn't seem like he's trying to, that he has any sense that like America itself can redeem can solve these problems, like America as such, or just like appeals to the ideal of America can can address these problems. He's more of a communist. Like that's where he sees the possibilities of redemption and, and progress. So a big part of the argument of your book is that Guthrie is this key cultural figure of the old left era, 
But when, especially when you dig into his letters and paintings, etc., that you did for this book, uh, you realize that it doesn't really make sense to sort of do this, like, well, there was the old left, which was like, really rooted in class issues and did did not, you know, didn't take intimacy. The personal was not political for them, you know. Uh, but, but then there was this new left that came along in the 60s and, and they got into the touchy-feely stuff, uh, you know, arguably <laughs> too much. And, you know, these this is the sort of neat dichotomy. And uh, Guthrie's life doesn't really show us that it certainly doesn't show us that that such a neat dichotomy is is true of him in his life uh he was this prominent figure of the old left who was was writing about every i mean almost in like you know proto second wave feminist way i mean like you know the personal was deeply political him whether it was sexuality whether it was racism uh whether it was just like sort of interpersonal relationships between one person and another you have a bunch of stuff in the book about how like you know we need to we need to take care of each other and clean our apartments or whatever because hitler doesn't want us to like clean our he wants us to have a dirty apartment it's just like he he there's there's like no line between the this his political stuff which which he is down to his bones you know an anti-fascist he's obviously very famous for the this machine kills fascists on his on his guitar i mean like he but that that there's no separation between this this personal and, and political in his in his how he conceives of himself how he conceives of his interpersonal relationships and friendships and romantic relationships and his you know his interactions with like the communist party um so just talk about why that dichotomy doesn't quite fit uh well he as you're saying you know he saw the the kind of global global political and the local political as like completely integrated to that to the extent that as you're saying like he would say things like yeah sweep off your sweep off your stoop for to fight hitler or whatever um and you know he also i think really believed that um the relationships that one has with one's intimates are models for political relationships and sort of vice versa so you know a kind of oppressive marriage or or you know intimate relationship it's enacting the same energies or satisfying the same drives as fascism you know um, but also like fascism wants that kind of relationship between people. He would also say capitalism wants that kind of relationship between people that he doesn't want. It doesn't want people to be too close to be, he, it wants people to be afraid of each other, to, to be nervous around each other. Um, you know, obviously to compete with each other. Um, so yeah, there's this kind of meshing of scales in a lot of his writing from like, you know, especially when he's writing to Marjorie towards the beginning of their relationship um, and just that's when these ideas really flower. I mean, in a way, I was trying to show that he's special. There's something really compelling just about his take on his time and how it, how it seems different um, from how it's been imagined before. I mean, so then, and the question gets asked: Look, is he? Is it just him, or is are you know? Are you is it? Are you? Can you really say like the old left was different just on the basis of this one guy? Or whatever, and you know, I think that's a pretty fair question. But a few years ago, um, I, I f for the first time discovered uh, Vivian Gornick's book, *The Romance of American Communism*. Um, so that was a huge, huge find. And L listeners of this show, longtime listeners, uh, you can go back to our episode <laughs> from last year where we had a whole four-person uh, discussion about oh, really? one, of, one of my favorite books of all time. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, in that book, you see really, I think, a lot of the same thing, like the way that these people's commitment to the cause, like sort of made the texture of their quotidian life, you know, um, not in a way like, oh, they were cult members and like they were just like always thinking about the revolution or whatever, but just like it was responsible for their social networks, you know, the social institutions that they spent time at, Um like so many, so many things, so many of the elements of, you know, what makes a life, what makes a, like a livable life were mediated through the Communist Party. Um, and I think, you know, Guthrie may be exceptional in like sort of his creativity and talent and all of that. But I, I also think he helps us, like Gornick's book, he helps us see radicals of that day as like embodied, you know, um, 
emotional, um, uh, sexual, you know, um, all of these things, which again, I think, cause you, when you think about like John Steinbeck or whatever, like you don't, you know, like that's like, that's dreary. <laughs> like it's hard to kind of, for somebody of our generation or, or, you know, the present day to sort of imagine themselves in that world because it's just so, it's so dreary. And when you read something like Gornick where you re- or you read Guthrie's papers, there you see like people like really living rich lives and I mean, up and uh, the ups and the downs. Right. And, and, you know, a big part of Gornick's book is saying that the party, yes, it, you know, it was a Stalinist and Stalinized party. Uh, yes, there were bad parts of that, but the, 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 the sort of anti-communist historiography is all entirely insistent on how the uh, party turned these party members into just sort of mindless automatons. And she's saying, no, these people found a way to be more human, to feel more alive through the party. And certainly in reading your book about Guthrie, I mean, he's somebody who is, you know, he, he's it's a deeply intimate portrait of a deeply intimate uh, person. Um, and yet he, he, you know, he, he, he's becoming more of himself. He sees the way to become more intimate and more human and more alive as, as coming through his interaction with the party and with socialist politics. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I did come to understand how a lot of that, I mean, sort of the historiography of, you know, the cold war has made a lot of that invisible. And just as it has with a lot of like a lot of, um, work that the that the communist party was doing on civil rights and on you know um there's there was there was just this this compulsion to make like you know the black church in the 19, in the early 50s the origin of civil rights movement but like that's that's work to obscure all of the work that the party was doing and many black communists led by black communists like in the 30s and 40s and and that's and he, he Guthrie learned a lot from them and um and was very much, you know, interested in that as a radical cause, like not not just like a you know, electoral kind of issue. I think at some point on the show we'll have to do an episode on uh, Glenda Gilmore's Defying Dixie, which I think you quote from in the the book extensively, uh, which is the main text that I learned about these things uh, from. Yeah. Um can so can you talk a, a bit about sort of like i mean we've been sort of talking around his his sort of uh how, his uniquely intimate uh, uh life and approach to life i mean you're, you're the book's uh, subtitle is woody guthrie an intimate life um so yeah can you talk about some of that i mean uh he, he there's all kinds of quotes from him throughout the book where some listeners to this podcast may may have may have been trained perhaps even by people like me and things I've published in magazines like Jacobin, uh, to think of, uh, like, that, to think in terms of that dichotomy that you've laid out that you that you think is not a particularly helpful one, or at least, like, Woody Guthrie breaks that dichotomy, and that's a, probably a more healthy way to, to go about your, your radical left uh, politics. Um, but he, he has this way of sort of talking about personal issues that, Never seems to, um, you know, he, he he talks about himself a lot. He talks about his feelings. He talks about his romantic desires, his sexual urges, his just just feelings of, of friendship and love towards other people, uh, towards men, towards women. Um, and so he's talking a lot about his feelings. But in reading the book and reading from his letters, it, it, to me, it never feels sort of... Um, like it's devolving into some just some sort of like me 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 like I only want to talk about myself I just like because he, he very seamlessly like uh, shifts between talking about what his feelings on any given thing are and then saying that you know the the, the solutions to my individual emotional problems let's say uh, are actually collective in nature and it sort of there's never any just sort of like wallowing in the self and and just self-obsession uh, even when he's talking about himself he's just seamlessly going back and forth between uh, I, I myself have these problems and my problems are all of our problems and the way that we deal with all of our problems is through getting together all of us and acting collectively to change the world if you could just talk and or give some examples about this unique aspect of Guthrie that was simultaneously like very in touch with himself and his feelings and his emotions, but never 
sort of sunk into just like self-obsession with his own emotions and it was always seamlessly tied to his belief that the answers to the problems of the world are collective in nature we had to get together with other people like it's not like he thought that he needed to like go to psychotherapy for you know 15 years to figure his shit out like that might be might be helpful but like it's it's not he's not seeking an individual solution to his individual problem he he doesn't see that his individual problems as separate from what we all the problems that we are all facing yeah um i, I mean you see again again you know you often do see him talk about uh an issue or state like depression and he'll and he'll come back to like, like the cause of all of this is capitalism um this is kinds of things that he would write in his journals um or in letters one one really compelling example of that um is there there's a chapter in the book that's devoted to his his the first time that he stayed in a in a mental hospital for a long period of time which was in the summer of 1952 um he was after a couple of violent episodes um he was committed to brooklyn state hospital and um put on the mental ward which is common with people with this is actually when he received the diagnosis of Huntington's, but there's this really detailed journal of his two month stay there that I found really fascinating. Um, Guthrie writes about this sense that like he kind of learns more about himself by talking to the other patients on the ward and by listening to them. And he has a sense of the doctor's not exactly not listening to him, to him, but are listening for certain things. They have like a kind of array of answers they expect and they can't really hear the patients when they talk. Guthrie's more interested in what happens when the patients talk to each other. He's also really interested in the kind of connections that it's possible for the patients to make one another around shame. Like they're all in this institution that's sort of like a socially sanctioned institution of shaming. Um, And he's really fascinated with the degree to which that makes it hard for them to talk to each other. He's, you know, the degree to which that's actually like, like, like earlier, that's a kind of like, you know, institutional strategy. Um, But he's also really interested in, he he has this sense that like shame should actually be a place where people can connect, like where they can form collectivities. Um, and, you know, he has some examples of that. He has a couple of examples of that sort of happening on this mental ward, including one encounter that he has with a gay man where he kind of starts to understand, like he, 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 at the beginning, he says something like, I, you know, I, I was always really afraid of like on the boxcars, I was always afraid of these guys who would come up to you. And, but I talked to this guy and, um, you know, I, um, you know, started to understand where he was coming from and, and I guess he's just sick in his own healthy way is what he says. (laughs) Um, and so like, I mean, that's kind of an example, I think of what, it's not like a huge collective of just two people, but I think that's an example of what he hoped intimacy could um, achieve. And, you know, and in, in, in that case, it's unmediated by a profession, by, by an institution. And I think that's a lot of what I was trying to get at in the later part of the book and in that chapter in particular was I think there's this historical trend, like post-war trend, um, putting a lot of faith in like a liberal technocracy kind of expertise culture. Um, you know, the, the Brooklyn State Hospital was like a state-of-the-art institution with playing softball and all this stuff. But like Guthrie tuned into a way that like it was this, you know, like biopolitical or whatever you want to call it, like force that even in it, its um, benevolent side was still mediating people's intimacies and relationships in a way that was constraining at best and, and, you know, potentially made them vulnerable to, to manipulation or, you know, oppression of different kinds. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, I think I maybe at one call it one, what at one point call it like professional, professionalized intimacy, like the sort of the, the psychiatric institution 
and he has a he has a sort of reaction against that. You have a great section in the book about the idea of union, as obviously he was very pro labor guy, but also he sort of took the idea of of union as something that should be again this is sort of like seamless life philosophy that is the is the philosophy that should guide your actions at work when you get together with your coworkers, but it also has to do with like your own intimate personal life and it's sort of all part of the same thing can you talk about his his ideas about about union yeah definitely um that was such an important word for him and it comes up in his writing over and over again and it's funny well you know as you're saying you know obviously he's, he's taken from labor in labor history and, and labor activism. Um, but yeah, he starts to see it as this kind of metaphor for for intimacy, essentially, like the breakdown of individuality, the breakdown of barriers between people um, at a really deep level. Like, I mean, you know, the union, as we conventionally know it, is, is like a model of collectivity, and that's where it draws its strengths. And you, you, know, you imagine people on this picket line chanting and all of that. I mean, for him, like a labor union was a place with the potential to really transform human relations um, and, and I think to overcome some of the sort of capitalist or fascist founded models of human relations um, that lead to isolation, that lead to cruelty, that lead to loneliness. Um, those are words, the word loneliness comes up over and over again also in his writing. Like he calls the war, World War II, the war to fight loneliness. He understood himself as fighting for um, a particular idea of human relationships. Um, and that was inseparable from whatever political ideologies were at play in the conflicts he was taking up sides in. Can you talk more uh, about his interpersonal relationships and um, how he saw sort of like validating other people and being intimate with people as, as just like an essential part of a, of a, of a good life. I mean, I guess this is a similar version of like the union question. I was like, what, what did, what did that union ideal look for him in his interpersonal life? Cause that's what a lot of your book is about is about his interactions with, uh, you know, with his second wife, with, with kids. I mean, th- there's a whole amazing section of the book on when, when he uh, has a child and he just sort of like, becomes obsessed with caring for this child. He gets a notebook where he's writing down like her every utterance in the notebook. And he's, he starts doing a bunch of kids songs. And he just really like comes alive uh, through his engagement with children. So, um, so yeah, just some, some more examples of like what, what that union ideal looked like for him with, with the actual people who are in his life. Um, so, you know, he wasn't that great a guy. <laughs> Like, he did a lot of shitty things. Um, so you have to, you know, he he slept with a lot of other women. And, you know, Marjorie knew about it in, in many cases and sort of put up with it. But it's clear that she didn't really want it to be happening. You know, it's it's a little hard to graft a lot of the ideals that he writes about onto his life, like, directly. I think I think I maybe also haven't communicated just like the kind of difficult turn that his life took um, in the sort of later mid forties. It's very micro um, focus here, but like he a really horrible thing um, took place in Marjorie and Woody's li- life, which is that their daughter Kathy. Um, burned to death, which is, you know, this recurring event and trauma in his life um, in a house, in an electrical fire in their house on Romita Avenue when when um, Woody was performing and, and Marjorie had left the house for a little while to go to the store across the street, apparently. So, and this is this, as you said, this is this young, like vibrant girl who Woody's like writing songs with, like making up dances with. He's taking her to school, like singing on the way to. Sc- they're singing on the street on the way to school. I found this really amazing memoir of some dude who grew up like right around in that neighborhood and and like had these memories of Woody carrying Kathy on his shoulders and singing like the songs that she would call out for, and all these kids following them down the street. You know, um, 
and she would just like greet everybody she met and like, you know, want to shake hands with everybody. Um, and so it was a really difficult event to write about, but they, yeah, she, she got really badly burned and she died a few hours later. Um, and there does seem to be this way in which his life takes a really, a, a darker turn. Um, so that's 1947. So he starts to kind of write a lot of, start writing these letters to women, these like sort of sexy letters. A lot of these are things that he would be, he would have been writing in his journal, but like kind of sex fantasies about like the babysitter or like another dancer or something like that. He starts to kind of send them to actual people, which is bad. And then that eventually leads to this arrest that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, what um but and that and to jail and to that treatment center um and throughout all of this it's like again it's not really clear but he seems to some of this may have been caused by some of his troubles may have been caused by early Huntington's symptoms and and the Guthrie family sort of always cites that as explaining um these letters um I think it's a little bit up in the air and there's actually some people who are like really some Huntington's, you know, advocates who really resist that. But it it could have played a role. And he was having a lot more trouble, you know, writing songs, um, getting recording gigs, all of these things. It's also the political climate is is shifting in a strong rightward direction. And the sort of survivors of the 30s, early 40s left are, are coming under a lot of pressure. Some of them are leaving, like... Alan Lomax is going to England and they're going into hiding. They can't get work. So it's, it's, it's sort of weird. Like, yeah, I mean, he, he, he really blossoms. Like when he meets Marjorie during the war, right after the war, he's like writing all this beautiful stuff. And then Kathy dies and like his life just really, really declines. So Guthrie's life is, despite how short it was, uh, it's, fascinating and uh and and rich and there's a million things to sift through a million things that we haven't talked about i guess aside from any specific details about about guthrie and and his life and sort of just uh bringing out this side of him that that hasn't really been brought up before you wrote this book uh for for us you know a, a jacobin radio listener um what, at the average person listening to this podcast, what what what's the sort of like lesson that you would hope a uh, person like that would could take from this portrait of this person who you paint, who, as you said, far from a perfect guy. In your at multiple times throughout the book, you're kind of you're, you're it's repulsive some of the things that he's doing, but like it's also a, a portrait of a life that is a really compelling one, and it's certainly one that made me think about certain ways that I live my own life uh, and and how, the kind of intimacy or I do or don't have with other people and uh, the extent to which that's good or bad. So what's a take-home lesson from this book for, uh, for you know, an average listener to this podcast about this life that you spent so much time uh, marinating in, Woody Guthrie's life? I mean, I, you know, I think there is a kind of, I mean, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not an activist. I'm an ac- academic. I'm a leftist academic. What the research made me think about and made me think is important is that we do need to think about our feelings toward one another um, on the left. Like we do, like as we're doing the work, we do need to recognize that we're, that what we're doing generates feelings and they're complicated. And part of it is just like listening to each other and making the space to listen to each other. We don't have to all love each other. We don't have to like sing Kumbaya or anything like that. And I don't think that's what he was calling for. But, you know, I, I do think there's some ways that Amer- like sort of American individualism in, in sort of insidious ways works its way into the operation of like activist groups and, you know, sort of people wanting to be territorial or, or whatever. And... um I think through reading Guthrie, I just there, it's important to open space for feelings and their full range 
in these circles and to th- and to open space for expression of the feelings and for thinking about what the feelings actually mean for you know whatever it is you're working for or against you know um you know there's this new i mean newish book by Jody Dean called Comrade and she's really trying to theorize yeah what should what is a comrade and what should that you know what should a relationship what should relationships among comrades look like what what are they consistent and she thinks that a comrade is can sort of offer benefits that are closed down by the logic of identity and comrades don't have to like be from the same background and they don't have to um you know have been oppressed in the same way or whatever um there's some things about it i think could be questioned, but I, I was really interested to read Dean's book because I felt like, like with the Gornick, like and the Gornick reissue, like there's something happening now. Like, like there's some turn on among leftist thinkers to think about like these issues again. Like, what is sociality on the left? What is what kinds of sociality open things up and what kinds close things down? Um. But that, you know, to recognize that that is part of what we do, like it's, in, it's, it's inevitably part of the work, you know, it's unavoidably so. And you can't act like it isn't. Um, we just have to, like, talk about being together and how to be together. Great. Well, Gus, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And thanks. It was, uh, it was very fun. And those were great questions. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.